And that's where we uh, start with the, uh, what we commonly call the Antinicaean Fathers. And we didn't get very far into that uh, last time, but uh, we'll get into that today. And the thing that I want you to remember here and to always keep in front of you, because it's, it's exactly what you need to keep your perspective today. And that is we have kind of began to show you how that the first deviation from the Word of God uh, began uh, with the good godly men who were basically uh, just beginning to get away from the Bible and start to use terms and phrases that had nothing to do with the Word of God, bringing in the, you know, the higher culture of education. You've got to remember back in Christ's day or back in the times that we're talking about here in the first, second century, um, it, their great wisdom and knowledge was the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire had pretty much set the stage for uh, all knowing and all learning. So they had the uh, tremendous influence into man's thoughts, man's reasoning. And it's much like today, if you want to get a scenario that you can kind of grab it and, and wrap your head around it, it's much like today with the uh, scholarship movement and the education movement. When it comes to the Bible and it comes to churches and, uh, you know, uh, this idea of you've got to have an education, you've got to have a degree, <clears throat> it's the same kind of pressure that was back then that is today that we see this thing developing. And that's why it's so important to see where it starts and be able to follow it all the way through. Because when we see the deviation of the Word of God continuing and being developed into thoughts and ideas, and in time, and you're going to begin to see this in this period of church history here, in time they begin to develop themselves into doctrinal teachings that have nothing to do with the Bible. And suddenly out of nowhere, around 300 A.D., suddenly completely like if you're just not paying attention, poof, out of thin air, came a brand new church with a brand new set of ideas, with a brand new set of doctrine. And uh, uh, unfortunately, none of it had to do anything with the Bible. But it's almost like it materialized out of thin air unless... You are able to track it through as I'm trying to show you here as we walk through and look at all these different aspects of, of, uh, of church history and see how this thing develops. Uh, take your Bible. I'll, I want to show you. We talked about a new dimension coming into uh, uh, Christianity, and that was the rise of the Gnostics. And you remember that I told you that a Gnostic uh, means a knower. And a Gnostic uh, back in the 1st and 2nd century... Uh, and many of them, as we're going to see tonight, were the Antiochian fathers. They lead up a brand of men who now uh, begin to take their spiritual insight and the things that they know about God and the Bible, and they claim to have a superior knowledge over the common, ordinary man. We know them today as Bible scholars. They looked at the common, ordinary person as someone who really was dependent on their higher knowledge and higher wisdom to get the truth of God. They thought that the truth of God only came through them because of their intellect and all that they had and all that they, uh, you know, that they were doing. They were, many of them, all of them, were, uh, were mixing all of the pagan things together with the things in the Bible, and we're going to see that here in a little bit as we start to come through it. 
But the rise of the Gnostics begins the movement now to begin to take over the, the church, take over the priest class, take over the common, ordinary people. I, wanna, I want you to look at something here, and this is what one of the things the book of Revelation does for you. Look at Revelation chapter 2, verse 6. At Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, it says this, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, I want you to uh, look at verse 6, and I want you to mark the word deeds there. So you just put a little circle around it so it just kind of stands out to you. Now, we know that the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was the Gnostic movement. It was the movement that basically said that the uh, priest class was over the laity class. And it's a thought and an idea that began with the Gnostics. But this is what I want to show you what Revelation does. Keep your finger there and then jump over here to Revelation chapter 2, same chapter, and look at verse 15. Now we go from verse 6, we're in the Ephesus church period, okay? When we come to verse 15, now we're in the, we're in the uh, Smyrna church period. We're about 100 years difference now. We're 100 years farther down the line. This is what Revelation shows you if you're paying attention. Look now in verse 15. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, what do you get from those two verses? What do you see from those two verses? Somebody raise their hand and tell me. What do you see happening here? John? From being a deed to being an established doctrine. Yep. It went from being a, a thought something that we're starting and something that an idea that we're putting out. And in a hundred years time, it gathered ground and it got support. And now it shows up in the next church period as a doctrine. See, this is what you've got to see. Uh, My goal in church history is not so much just to give you, um, you know, all of the things in history that you need to know. And that's, I mean, obviously we'll do that. But my aspect of it is to get to the point where uh, you see this line. You've got to see this, how this thing works. All right, now I'm going to begin reading here in chapter 2. We'll pick it up where we were at last week, starting here in verse 8. And here's what it says. And under the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation... And poverty, but thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Bear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, and that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Now, I told you when we started this and we moved into this that uh, um, this runs about uh, 200 A.D. up to about 325 A.D., which will bring us up to um, what we'll get into next time, and that is the first Christian council, Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. We'll talk about that in great length when we get to that point uh, because it's very a key point in history. But we are going to look at some of the men here. And um, during this period of time, we have seen now that 
all the other books that have been written, all the other material, the phony stuff that has been put out by all of these men who are deviating from the Word of God. Some of them, the early ones, are, are, are saved men like Polycarp and like uh, uh, the ones we looked at. As we move on down through history of 50, 60, 70 years, most of them are not saved. And now we find some real heretical people out there that are really way out in left field. And this is what's taking place uh, during the uh, movement of the, of the history of the church. At the same time, at the same time, and we'll talk about this, the way I do this is I bring you one line all the way through to a point, and then I go back and pick up the other line and bring it through to the same point because it's too hard to try to jump back and forth. So right now we're dealing with the corruption part. We're dealing with this bottom line here and seeing this thing begin to separate itself from the true line. And, uh, but all while this was going on, there was a true biblical line that was doing exactly what they were supposed to do, and uh, you find them making a reference to them uh, in the writings in Revelation as you come down there and you read that. The Gnostic position uh, was always against God. It was always against the authority of God, and it was set up that it could be uh, whatever it needed to be to get around anything that God was trying to do. Now, some of the Anti-Nicene Church fathers that we're going to talk about in a little, in some of these overlap. Uh, we've already talked about a couple of these because they do overlap a little bit. But I gave you the one, and I think I gave you his name as Vasilides, but we we corrected that, and now we know it's uh, Valenti- Valentinus. I think is what it is. I don't know where I got Vasilides, but I had to search it down. I found it. All it took me a while, but I found it. And he's probably, when you go online, and you can even Google him, and uh, you'll find that he is uh, the most famous of the Gnostics. And he believed, basically, that Christ was not God. He was taught the Egyptian Greek and the Jewish Alexandria philosophy. He shows up on the scene in Alexandria, Egypt, uh, in about 133 A.D. He claims to be a disciple of Matthias. And, uh, and, 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 you know, and, and so, you know, he traces his lineage back, Matthias being the one that replaced uh, Judas. And, uh, and so, and he follows the teachings of Peter. He puts the emphasis on Peter's writings, and obviously uh, we know where that's going to lead because how many times have I taught you that you put the emphasis on Paul's writing as the New Testament Christian, not Peter's? All these men varied on their teachings on life and religion and spirituality to some degree, but they all follow a, a single thread. And uh, uh, they all agree basically that matter is evil, and that the source of man's problem is matter. Uh, so they all reject, uh, rejected the fact that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. Now, why would they do that? Because when you take the position that is the Greek Babylonian and the Greek Plato, Aristotle, Socrates mindset that all matter is evil, then you have to reject Christ coming in the flesh because when he came in the flesh, that made him matter, see? It made him uh, a substance by which they thought all matter was evil. So this is where the source of it comes. 
And um, because all matter was evil, hence they change the Word of God, uh, and, and then they teach their heresy contrary to what the Bible says. And they all follow the same kind of line. We have another one by the name of Serenthesis. He's born in Egypt, and he's of Jewish descent uh, in the second half of the first century. He also studies at Alexandria. He believed the basic philosophy of all the other Gnostics and taught that Jesus Christ was not God. They all follow that same line of reasoning. And that's why, when a little bit later on, when we see some of these things develop down through history, that's why in all the new Bibles, the first thing that is taken out is the deity of Christ. Because none of these guys who trace their roots back to the very uh, school that corrupted the manuscripts from which all these new Bibles came from, none of them believe that Jesus Christ was actually God. Um, He basically teaches that the Spirit of God left him when he was on the cross, and only the man died. And of course, uh, you find that uh, in Luke. In, you find that in Luke chapter twenty-three, and in Luke chapter twenty-three, you have the thief on the cross. You remember that story? And in your King James Bible, the thief looks over at Christ on the cross and he says, "Lord, remember me when I come into Thy kingdom." Jesus says back to him, uh, "This day thou shalt be with me in paradise." Now your Bible says that when he looked at. Uh, Christ, he says, Lord, remember me. But in an NIV or an ASV or any new translation, it won't say Lord. You know why? It'll say Jesus. You know why it says Jesus? Because the man who corrupted those texts did not believe that Jesus Christ was God on the cross. So they changed, they looked at that and they said, well, according to what we believe, he wasn't God, he wasn't Christ. God left him on the cross. So they take out the word Lord and put in the name of the earthly man, Jesus. Now, how many Christians know that? And you see, this is the problem you get into when you get into the new Bibles. These Bibles have been corrupted, and we find the very ideas of the Gnostics in those, in those Bibles. And I'm going to show you how that happens here as we come on down through it and study it in a little bit deeper here. Uh, Serenthesis accepts Christ as a good teacher, but not as a redeemer, a man from sin. He rejected all of the New Testament, except portions found in the book of Matthew. Then you have a guy by the name of Saturn Turnus, and he's born at Antioch. And he establishes a school in Antioch, and basically the school is a school that teaches against the New Testament principles and against the Word of God. He's also a contemporary of, of, uh, of Valendius, and uh, <clears throat> he teaches Christ is a demagogue. That means he's a lesser God, and this is the Jehovah Witness doctrine. Jehovah Witnesses teaches that Jesus Christ was God, but he wasn't very God, he was a lesser God. In other words, he was a created God. And uh, again, in your Bible, in your King James Bible, in John chapter 1, verse 18, this is what it says. No man has seen God as any, no man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Now, that's what your King James Bible says. It says, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, 
who is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. That's what your King James Bible says. If you've got an NIV or an AIV, ASV, it's going to say this in the same passage. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, see, has declared him. And they teach that Jesus Christ was a begotten God. Why? Because Serinthius, as in Shatter and Turnish, as in all of these guys, believed that Jesus Christ was a lesser God. He was not very God. He was a created God. And, of course, we know that is not true. But there again, it winds its way, and you find its way right into the, uh, right into the new Bibles that you have today. Uh, he taught that Christ, and this is where, you know, really, you know, we think that evolution starts with, with Charles Darwin. And, of course, that's not true. Uh, Shatter and Turnus thought, taught that Christ uh, came as a worm and then evolved and had to crawl along until God sent him a divine spark to stand him upright and then hence brought him into a man. And that sounds kind of ridiculous, you know, from where we're at today. But uh, where he got that from is from the ancient Babylonians and from the ancient Egyptians who also taught evolution. Evolution was not something that Charles Darwin came up. He was just the guy the devil used to put it into play in the, in the 1800s when the devil was ready to use it. Evolution goes back way farther than uh, Charles Darwin. And, of course, we find it taught with the Babylonians. They taught that man crawled out of the, or, uh, worms and worms crawled out of the Nile and evolved into be men. The Babylonians taught that. And so here we have, you know, one of the Gnostics who is steeped in the Babylonian and the Egyptian philosophy, bringing that same concept in now and bringing it into Christianity. And this is how you begin to see all of this stuff uh, takes place. And... Uh, you know, uh, he believed that marriage and having kids was of Satan and rejected eating meat. He denied the human birth of Christ and he rejected the Old Testament as literal. He didn't, and of course, he did not last long around Antioch. And of course, the reason why he didn't last long around Antioch, because Antioch in your Bible, as you should know by now, is the hotbed of Bible Christianity. I mean, they're tearing it up in Antioch. He, he ain't going to last very long there. And as I said before, while all, of this, while all of this is going on, and all this heresy is taking place, you never want to forget that God still has his faithful witness and the true body of Christ. They're severely persecuted. When you come down through here, and we read that passage in the Smyrnaeus where it says you're persecuted 10 days. Remember that passage? I remember what verse it is, but it's in chapter 2 right there, where they're persecuted for 10 days. That'll be a reference to the 10 official Roman persecutions that took place during this time, which took place from about 67 A.D. to 313 A.D. under the Neros uh, and, uh, and, uh, and some of the uh, Caesars as they came down through history. So that's the direct reference to that. Revelation chapter 2, verse 9 through 10 says, I know thy works and tribulation and poverty. But thou art rich, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, this is where we see the first inkling of God defining what true riches are. And, of course, the true riches are, is the persecution that they're going through. 
And uh, he basically says to them, I know thy works in tribulation and poverty. But then he puts in parenthesis, but thou art rich. Now, you can take that thought and look over as you want to go on down through Revelation and get into chapter 3 and look at the Laodicean church period. That's exactly the advice that he gives the Laodicean church period. He, t- he tells them to go out and, and get gold tried in the fire because of the fact that they are, they are not rich. And, of course, we know that true riches is the Word of God and what you have in Christ. And, of course, we begin to see this. And then another thing here, and he says this, and you want to mark this in your Bible. I'm going to walk over here and get a cup of coffee while I'm talking to you. You want to mark this in your Bible. Oh, Steve. Look down there and he says, and I know the blasphemy of them that say they are Jews. Now, what do we got there? Notice what we've got here is this. The blasphemy of them that say they are Jews. That is your first look at the doctrine that's going to be coming on and coming on very strong in the next couple of hundred years. The fact that the church now has taken the place of the nation of Israel. This is what we call here uh, this is what we call the form of amillennialism or postmillennialism. The idea that the church has taken the place of the nation of Israel. The idea that God is finished with the nation of Israel and we now become the spiritual Jews. So therefore, we have uh, taken the place of God's people, the nation of Israel. And he says there, the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not but are of the synagogue of Satan. Clearly showing you that this is where the beginning of the concept develops. This also in time becomes a doctrine. When the Roman Catholic Church comes on the scene uh, about 300, 400 A.D., they adopt completely by 500 A.D. anyhow, uh, the complete teaching and the idea that God is all finished with the nation of Israel and now they have become the spiritual Jews. And that's why when you go to a Catholic church, and some of you grew up Catholic in Catholic churches, notice it says the synagogue of Satan. You know what a Catholic church does? The Catholic church takes most of the stuff in the Old Testament that you find the Old Testament priest doing and wearing. Do you ever watch the priest in the clothes that he wears? They're a mock-up of the Old Testament priest closing. You ever watch a priest walk down the thing with that, with that uh, incense on a chain, so to speak? Uh, and he swings it back and forth. That You find the priest doing that in the Old Testament. You're going to find that what they have done, basically, is they have come up with the idea that God is finished with the nation of Israel, so they have taken everything that God did in the Old Testament to close the, uh, that's why they have all of the uh, aids to worship, you know, the, the statues and all of those things. They bring all of that stuff in, and they, they, they blend it in with Christ in the New Testament. But they take the position that they now have taken the place of the Jews. And this is where it starts right here, and this is why it says, the blasphemy of them that say there are Jews, you know, and are not. And... Uh, He goes on and he says, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, 
and there it is, that you have tribulation ten days, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. And these Christians, the true line here is, is severely uh, persecuted. They are absolutely severely uh, persecuted for their faith. And uh, it, 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 early on, one of the things you've got to remember, early on, it doesn't seem to matter if they were really, truly Christians or that they're of the false line. The, the, the Roman Empire at that point didn't make a distinction between the good guys and the bad guys. The Roman, uh, pagan Roman government was not a church yet. They looked at anybody. They looked at Serenthesis. They looked at, uh, uh, you know, any of these guys, just like they looked at the true biblical line. We step back in history and look at the development of it, and we see the difference. They didn't look at it from the difference, and that's why in both cases they got martyred and uh, they got persecuted. And uh, the, the heretics right along with the uh, true line. But the real true line, uh, you don't read much about in books. Uh, they're, they're just not, uh, their names are lost to the history of time. Uh, these Christians, as somebody said one time, they lived like sheep, they prayed like saints, they preached like lions, and they died like flies. Uh, they were just butchered. The real Christians aren't writing or fighting about anything. They're, they're paying the price, uh, dying in the arena as they witness to Christ uh, all through the world. Then we have another Ananiasian father by the name of, and we talked about him, this guy, make on the heretic. Uh, but I'll give you a little more information on him. He lives about 160. He's a leader of the early cult who goes to Rome and joins the church uh, by making generous contributions financially to the church. He thinks the New Testament was contaminated by Jewish teaching, and he completely rejects the Old Testament. He rewrote the Old Testament canon and then left it with only 11 books instead of 37. He also taught the idea that Christ uh, was not the true God and that Christ left him, uh, or God left him on the cross. He rejects Christ's deity. He believed in the eternal existence of matter. Uh, Polycarp called uh, Macon the heretic the firstborn of Satan. And I told you in Luke chapter 11, either our first or the second time, I showed you the, what is commonly called the Lord's Prayer and how they left 20 words out and how that prayer uh, has now become the prayer of Madame Blansky, who was the witch back in the 1800s and, uh, and put together the dogma and the rites of black magic. And here we find the Lord's Prayer uh, being uh, taken 20 words out being put in the black magic cult book as a prayer to Satan. But lo and behold, when you get an NIV in Luke chapter 11, you got the same prayer that Madame Blansky's got uh, in the book on cults in the book of the dead uh, because it all comes from make on the heretic. And so if we're paying attention and we start to see how the, the drawing of these three lines and the development of three different positions um, are, are coming about. It's going to be invaluable us later down the line. We saw as we came through the book of Acts, remember I told you Antioch of Syria. That's going to be the hotbed of Bible Christianity. That's where the, the true word of God was. It remained 
And from there is where the New Testament church started, and we can trace our roots tonight in Old Paz Baptist Church. We can trace what we, our roots, and it's not by going back to my uncle, my great-uncle, my great-grandfather down the line. It's not tracing it back by lineage, but tracing it back by what we believe, see? And we can trace our lineage right back to the uh, book of Acts, where they're first called Christians at Antioch. Then we saw Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria, Egypt is a contemporary of, of, uh, of uh, uh, Antioch of Syria. What does that mean? It means they're both in existence at the same time. When Antioch of Syria, in Acts chapter 11, where they're first called Christians, and Paul's taken his missionary trips out, there's already a great library and university, and by that time, um, Alexandria, Egypt, had become the seat of knowledge for all the known world. So they're at, they're at the same time period. And we saw that in the book of Acts. And then we saw how that in time, uh, we're going to go from the from the Alexandrian aspect in Egypt, and then we're going to move into the western side of, of, uh, of the Middle East, and that'll be into Rome. And those were the three things that we talked about in the book of Acts that you never want to lose sight of. Because from those three cities come the three families of manuscripts by which every Bible on planet Earth is going to come from. And uh, we'll show you how that develops here in just a little while. We see that the Bible believers in Antioch are holding fast and doing the work of God and, uh, and spreading all over Asia Minor with the gospel. That's what they're doing. The Roman Catholic Church starts to mess with the writings of the church fathers when it develops here a little bit later on. And, uh, and uh, you know, and they get the idea that, uh, that, they're, that they are writing from God. And so they bring in all these writings, and they, 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 they think that they're inspired just like everything else. And the Alexandrian aspect of this, uh, I think it's probably one of the most fascinating things that I've ever studied in my life. There's been several things when I started to study history. Uh, I look at them and maybe they, they don't work for you the same way they work for me. I don't know why they wouldn't, but maybe they don't. But for me, when I studied history and I started to equate it into the Bible, there were certain things in history that, that, that I just had to know because they were so vital in understanding everything else. And one of those things that I, just, I had to know and understand was the concept of what was going on down in Alexandria, Egypt. Because from that school, from that school that started down there before Christ even showed up, from that school down there in Alexandria, Egypt, you can trace the devilment and the problems and the circumstances and all of the things that bring us right up today to the corruption we have in the church today. And it's, it's vital. If you, there are certain things in church history that if you miss them, if you don't see them for what they really are and get it the way it really is, you're going to waste your time going through it because they are so absolutely vital. And uh, the Alexandrian setup and, uh, brings us to what has to be the most unusual school ever established for the work of destroying the Word of God. 
And I can safely say this today without any reservations whatsoever. Every Bible college today in the world, every seminary, whether it's a Baptist seminary, a Southern Baptist, a Lutheran, Catholic, whatever the case may be, every, every school of higher education about the Bible is going to be set up and founded on the basic fundamental principles that started with the first Christian university in Alexandria, Egypt. And you can take that to the bank. Now, the story of this school is, is most important uh, in the Christian study of church history. And it, I can hardly overemphasize it. I mean, I could talk about it for hours and never get to the point where you would, uh, you know, be saying too much about it. Because the problem in the 20th and the 21st century where we're living right now in Bible Christianity is the fact that the Bible has ceased to be the final authority and has been replaced with the idea of Christian education. And this is true of 99% of Bible colleges in this country and could be proved in any court in 15 minutes. Their pamphlets, their books that they write, and the things that they talk about the Bible and an infallible Bible or the defense of the true Word of God is about as honest as a Mickey Spillane movie or book. And it comes simply down to nothing could be farther from the truth today that the very institutions that have been set up under the guise and the pretense of preparing young men and teaching young men and young ladies for the ministry is the exact same system that takes the Bible out of their hands that thereby guarantees that they're never going to do the ministry. And it's one of the most incredible things that you're ever going to see and go through in in studying history. This school we're about to study and look at probably had more to do with what happened in Bible Christianity uh, at this time more than any other factor. Therefore, this most unusual Christian university should be understood by the child of God. Now, the first thing I want to tell you is this. When the Greek Empire ruled the world through Alexander the Great, Alexander the Great brought the world at that particular point in time to the pinnacle of knowledge as far as the world was concerned. They had really set the standard for society. The, the Greek Empire, the world has never gotten over the Greek Empire. Even in Christ's day, uh, they spoke Greek they, the Romans, they, 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 they fashioned everything they had after the Greeks. They worshipped the Greeks. The writers of the great philo Greek philosophers, they, they, were, they were just, you know, held in high esteem by, by everybody. And everybody wanted to attain to what the Greeks had. Because at that time, their civilization and their culture, and the Greek empire was the seat of knowledge of the world. Well, when the Greek Empire went into demise and the Roman Empire took over, that seat of knowledge shifted from the Greek Empire into Alexandria, Egypt. And Alexandria, Egypt now is the hotbed of secular knowledge, science, all the things that the Greeks had. What they did was in Alexandria... They brought all of the works of the Greek, great Greek philosophers in. They also brought in all of the works and the ancient works that they had from the Babylonians, from the Egyptians. And they compiled all of that material together. 
And that is the material that they had at hand in Alexandria at the time of Christ's birth. And that great place of learning was the standard for all of the world. Even today, Alexandria at that high time had the greatest library any place on planet Earth. And that library was almost kin to one of the seven wonders of the world. It was a vast library, and it contained all of the ancient works. And men, their God was education. Their God was the Greeks. Their God was the writings of these men. So you begin to see where this thing is going to go. And I want you to see that. Around 20 A.D., about uh, 13 years before Christ starts his public ministry, or about 10 years before Christ starts his public ministry, This school is run by a man by the name of Philo, about 20 A.D. Philo, obviously, you can see his connection to the word philosophy. Philo was a Jewish philosopher. He's a Jew. He was born in Alexandria, and he lives up to and through the time of Christ. He dies about 50 A.D., long before the completion of the New Testament. He was profoundly influenced by Greek thought, especially by the writings of Plato. He followed the doctrine of Stoicism, and Stoicism is, it was put out by the Greek philosopher Zeno back in 334 to uh, 261 B.C. And, uh, and he basically taught in that philosophy that happiness can only be achieved by accepting life's up and downs as your unchangeable destiny. In other words, uh, almost, almost a, uh, a Calvinistic viewpoint of life uh, all the way back at that period of time. And uh, later on in life, before he dies, he heads a delegation of Jews who went to Rome to plead the cause of the Alexandrian Jews with the Roman emperor. And that was uh, uh, Galapagus, I think it was. As a philosopher, he sought, and this is what they all try to do, he sought to take the Greek philosophy and the Old Testament and put them together. This is what they all do. And this is absolutely vital that you see and understand this. When Christ is there on this earth, and in Alexandria, Egypt, Philo is down in Alexandria, Egypt, while Christ is laying out and doing and growing up and getting ready to start his public ministry, Philo already has a copy of the Old Testament. And what he is doing is he's trying to reconcile in his own works and his writings the Greek uh, pagan concepts and the Old Testament and putting them together. He's trying to reconcile what God said in the Old Testament, what Aristotle, Socrates, and Plato said under the Greek Empire. And he tries to bring those things together, and he uses what we call, we talked about this, the allegorical method of interpretation of Scripture. In other words, just make it up whatever you want it to be. See, that was the method. He teaches that Moses was the source of much of the Greek philosophers. His writings try to blend the Old Testament ideas of one God with the nation of Israel with the Greeks' idea of many, many gods. 
Philo's writings and teachings had a profound influence on the Gnostics and their teaching during the time of the first, the second, and even the third century. Every one of these men that we've talked about was profoundly influenced by what Philo had done in Alexandria, Egypt. And here we go back to our original thing we talked about. Well, God was preparing his son for his earthly ministry to bring about the salvation of mankind and take the word of God to the ends of the earth, the devil is at the same time as down in Alexandria, Egypt, getting the counterfeit ready to to stop what God is trying to do. These are the things you've got to look at in history. If you don't have a Bible perspective on history, you'll never see anything from history. And uh, the source of teaching of all of this stuff uh, comes from, from him. And he's the one who did the original work. And I told you, all of these things are found in the new translations today. His work on the Old Testament, dealing with the allegorical method of interpretation, was a tremendous influence in the lives of some of the Ananiacian church fathers, especially the guys that followed him in this school. Now, after he dies, a man by the name of Pantanus takes it over. And he runs it for a while, and he follows basically the same format, and he, uh, he does basically the same thing. He basically builds on the work that Philo had done. But then after his death, we have a man that takes it over, and this man's name is Clement of Rome, and he brings about a great change in Alexandria uh, with this university. Because now, with Clement of Rome, we talked about him before, with Clement of Rome... We now find that uh, suddenly the school becomes a Christian university. Now the devil has shifted gears from destroying the Old Testament. Now he's going to use it to corrupt the New Testament. And so all the time that God is unfolding his plan. You know, I don't know of a time. It's certainly true in church work. I don't know of a time that... uh, that when God isn't doing something in your world, that the devil isn't doing something to counter what God's doing in your world. I, I don't know of a time in, in any of my, ever my ministry that the greatest things that were going on at the same time, the devil was preparing underneath the surface bad things to go on to counter the good things. That's just the way it is. But you've got to see that in history. And where now the devil had pretty much had the Old Testament corrupted, now suddenly, just out of on a whim... Clement of Rome is going to make this a Christian university and for the purpose of destroying the New Testament. And, of course, uh, nothing really happens to make it Christian. It, uh, it's one of those things that uh, it, ta- it takes place simply because the devil is moving down through history to try to counteract what God is doing. After Clement of Rome, this school becomes taken over by a man by the name of Origen. And uh, another church father, Antiochian church father, and this will be around 200 A.D. Um, Origen becomes the foundation for every heresy and apostate trend among the writers and scholars in, in the churches for the next 18 centuries. He absolutely takes everything that these other men have done from Philo to Pantanus to Clement of Rome, and he cements it into an a absolute, crystal clear 
uh, philosophy uh, that begins to build a higher Christian education system. And this philosophy has founded, like I said, the idea today that the source of every new Bible on the market and the idea that, uh, you know, that uh, you and I really can't know the Bible unless you get with one of the modern-day Gnostics. Now, Origen lives about 184 to 254. Now, we need to take some time with our old buddy Origen here because he's a kingpin in church history. And his name, strangely enough, when you lay it all out, his name was Adam. And without a doubt, every historian, uh, secular, and even in the Christian circles, thinks that he's the greatest thing since Jesus Christ. You will hardly find anyone who doesn't brag about his mind, about his works, about his deep thoughts and influences on Christianity of his day. I told you when we started that probably the single greatest the single greatest book that, or volume of books that is used today in, uh, in every college on this, in this world is uh, the eight volumes by Philip Schaff. And Philip Schaff wrote eight volumes on the history of the church. This volume is volume two, and it runs from A.D. 100 to 325 A.D. Philip Schaff writes about origin. And uh, I'll read you a few excerpts here from what he says. The life and character of Adamaeus Origen. It says he was baptized in childhood according to Egyptian custom, which he traced his apostolic origin. Well, that's really good. So he's baptized as a baby, and he traces his apostolic relationship with Christ back to his Egyptian custom of being sprinkled. That'll work for you. His mode of living, uh, his mode of life during the whole period was strictly ascetic. That means very strict. He made a matter of principle to renounce every earthly thing not indispensably necessary. He refused the gift of his pupils and in literal obedience to the Savior's injunction, he had but one coat, no shoes, and took no thought of tomorrow. He rarely ate flesh, never drank wine, devoted a greater part of the night to prayer and study, and slept on the bare floor. Nay, in his youthful zeal for eccentric holiness, he even committed an act of self-castration, partly to fulfill literally the mysterious words of Christ in Matthew chapter 19, verse 12. Ouch. <laughs> now, Matthew chapter 19, verse 12, you know what it is, says, if your right eye offendee, pluck it out. So you're better to go into heaven with one eye than to go into hell with both eyes, you see. So he, and I love Philip Shaw, the great theologian. To fulfill literally the mysterious words of Christ in Matthew chapter 19. Well, I don't know what's so mysterious about those words. I can put Matthew chapter 19 in a context for you faster than you could make me a cheeseburger. I mean, it's, it's but this is higher education for you, see. What you don't know, which is a lot, is always a mystery. Um, let's go on here. And he says, Origen, oh, here it comes. Origen was the greatest scholar of his age and the most gifted, most industrious, and most cultivated of all the Ananiasian fathers. His knowledge embraced all departments of philosophy and theology of his day. 
with his united, profound, and fertile thought, keen penetration, and glowing imagination. I love words like that, man. That's, nobody ever writes about me that way. With his united, profound, and fertile thought, keen penetration, and glowing imagination. As a true divine, he concentrated all his studies by prayer and turned them, according to his best conviction, to the service of truth and piety. Uh, notice he says his knowledge embraced all departments of philosophy and theology. You know what he does? He tries and carries on the great tradition of taking the philosophy of the Greeks and mixing it with the theology of the Old Testament, you know, in this case, the New Testament. Origen's greatest service was his exegesis. Exegesis is his ability to write about the books of the Bible. One time an old Alabama farmer was up there fighting with some scholars over the King James Bible, and one of the guys got up there and said, well, we're going to talk today about, and they're trying to make fun of the guy, because we're going to talk today and, and we'll talk about exegesis. The old uh, Alabama guy said, let me tell you something, Buster, there ain't no extra Jesuses in the Bible, there's only one. <laughs> That's my kind of guy. <laughs> Origen's greatest service was his exegesis. He is father of the elitical investigation of critical investigation of Scripture, and his commentaries are still useful to scholars for their suggestiveness. He had received from God the greatest gift to be an interpreter of the Word of God to men. Oh man, I thought I read someplace in the Bible that was the Holy Spirit of God job over there in First Peter. I must have missed that. Among the, among the critical were the Hisplaxa, the six-fold Bible, which we know as the Septuagint. Uh, his commentaries covered almost all the books of the Old, Old and New Testaments and contained a vast wealth of original and profound suggestions. You know, it's all original and profound suggestions. It's not profound truth. It's all suggestions. See, that's where these guys live. They don't like the fact that we got an absolute final authority that you can bet your soul on, that you can go to to find out everything you want to find out. They like the eternal suggestions, you see. His commentaries covered most all books of the Old and New Testaments and contained a vast wealth of original and profound suggestions with the most arbitrary, ha, huh, allegorical, yes, and mystical fancies. They were of three kinds, short notes on a single difficult passages for beginners. All of those are lost, thank God for that, except they have been gathered from the citations of the fathers. Uh, extended expository of whole books of the Bible for higher scientific study. See? See, I like to bring those words in. Now, I don't know how to tell you this, but the two warnings in your Bible have been violated before you go any farther in here, because the first warning is in Colossians chapter 2 about philosophy, and the second one is in Timothy about science falsely so-called. Now, how do, you, how do you not get that? How do you not see that the Bible says one thing, these guys are doing something else? I'll tell you how. Once your final authority becomes your education, instead of that book, you're out of it. You'll make it whatever you want to make it and justify it in the process. And, of course, uh, this is Oregon. He was born of Christian parents at Alexandria around 184. His father was martyred at an early time in his life. Oregon led a, 
a very aesthetic life, like we talked about. He made himself a eunuch through castration, uh, through a misinterpretation of a passage in Matthew. See, there are some mistakes you make in the Bible, and you can get away with it. Other mistakes in the Bible you make, you're in trouble for the rest of your life. What can I tell you? He writes commentary on almost all the books of the Bible, having at his disposal a vast group of shorthand writers and stenographers. He writes many dogmatic and practical works on the Bible, but his greatest work was what we call the Hixplaxa. And uh, it's a, the Hixplaxa is a six-column Old Testament with a Greek Old Testament uh, in the, uh, put in it, which is on the fifth column of it. And uh, we know this today as the Septuagint. Now, without getting into a lot of detail on it, here's what you've got. When you get into the scholarship today, they will teach you that Christ used and read and spoke from a Greek Old Testament. And, of course, we know that the Old Testament is in Hebrew. But they've got to have a Greek Old Testament because they've got to bring this thing in and, and bring it along. So they try to make Christ, uh, they try to make Christ uh, tell you that Christ used a, a Greek Old Testament. There is no proof on this planet that Christ ever used uh, a Greek Old Testament in any way, shape, or form. You can, and Origen is the one that comes up with this Septuagint in his six-column Bible. And that's why it's called a hex plaxa. Hex is six. And that's six columns uh, reading it side by side, one in this language, one in that language, but in, in the Old Testament in, in, in Greek. And, of course, uh, the uh, Septuagint was something that Origen fabricated. Every Bible scholar on the planet today, when they want to correct your Bible or they want to take you someplace and prove something, will pull out the Septuagint. Uh, if you get an NIV or an ASV or any of the other Bibles, you will find actually, if they're study Bibles anyhow, you will finally actually down in the margin someplace, we'll even give you a reading out of the Septuagint and tell you that that's the reading that it comes from. The Septuagint was origin fabrication. He spends years and years at Alexandria changing uh, the, uh, the Antiochian text. And here's basically what happened. And this is what you've got to begin to see. Philo... Pantanus, they take the Old Testament, which has already been established now for many, 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 many hundreds of years, and they take the Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and they go to work on it. And what they do is they begin to change the Old Testament uh, writings that uh, were what we would call the, uh, you know, the Old Testament Jewish Bible. Uh, we call it the Masoretic text because it comes to us from the Masoretic Jews who... Uh, uh, who preserved it for us. And they take that, and he takes it down there, and he starts reading the Old Testament, and he has his Greek philosophers over here. Where he doesn't agree with the Bible, he'll change it and put it in line with the Greek, uh, uh, Greek philosophers. That's what they did in the Old Testament, therefore corrupting and destroying the Old Testament. Now, when Clement of Rome comes on the scene, and then Origen after him, now the, the school becomes not just a philosophical school anymore of thought. Now it becomes a Christian university. And at this point, what they do is they begin to take the New Testament. Now here's what happened. The New Testament is, is put together in Antioch. Those Christians in Antioch knew exactly what book should be in your Bible. They knew that because they were in line with the apostles themselves. 
Many of the apostolic church fathers had known Jesus and they knew exactly, exactly what book should be in the uh, canon of Scripture. They knew exactly how many gospels there should be. Because like I told you, you got, what, 120 out there today, probably more than that. They knew there was only four. They knew exactly the books that was to go into the book which was going to become the Bible. They, they're all written in Greek. And at that particular time, those books are being passed around. And uh, they're not in the form of a Bible yet by any stretch of the imagination. But they're in manuscript form. And they're letters. And they're being copied and they're being passed about. And it's just like, uh, you know, in our city, maybe there's, there's, there's 20 churches. And we would have a letter. We would copy it off and give them a copy of it. And we would all recognize together what is the true scriptures and what is the false scriptures? We would know that because we are God's true people. And just the way we know how to sort out bad heresy today by using the Bible, they knew how to sort it out back then by where they were, who they were with, and what God had told them. They are doing the exact same thing that we are doing. They are following what they have been told to do without any deviation whatsoever. Okay. They're doing that, and they're following that along, and they're, they're keeping that, and they're staying true to it. People are coming in, and they're trying to introduce other things that they know to be wrong, and they basically have separated themselves from that. That's why the Bible says that they tried them that says they were apostles. Remember that? The church at Ephesus? It said they tried them that said they were apostles and found them liars. The church held the line. The church did exactly what it was supposed to do, thereby, for you and for me, ensuring that there would always be a true line coming down through the history of the church. Now, their job on that end is our job on this end. You see that? What they did back here was preserved for the future generations, the absolute true line of God. Our job today, right here, is to do the same thing. Other than the clothes we wear and the vehicles we drive and the homes we live in and the food we eat and the places we go, our job is exactly the same as it was back there. Keep out the bad teaching keep out the heresy, they isolated themselves from these guys, they marked the ones that were wrong, and they let everybody know about it, and they preserved for us a true line that is very easy to go down through history and follow through. Well, we're going to do that as we go on down through church history. But here's what happens. Just like the Old Testament was corrupted, and just like the Alexandrian guys got a copy of the Old Testament, they got a copy of the New Testament. And uh, they took the writings of the New Testament apostles that you have in your Bible, and they made their way down into Alexandria, Egypt. And now, Clement of Rome and, and Origen do the same thing with the New Testament that um, they did with the Old Testament, where Pantanus and Philo looked at the Old Testament and tried to reconcile it with their own pagan ideas. Now, Clement of Rome and Origen take the New Testament, and they reconcile it. And that's why what, they, what Origen is responsible for is over 60,000 changes in the New Testament text. 
he found 60,000 places, 60,000 plus places that he did not agree with based on what he thought God was, he thought the church was, he thought what everything should be, and so he changed them. And so now what we have, by the time that he's off the scene, you clearly see what we have now, I hope. We now have our first two families of manuscripts developed. We have the true line, which is in, Alex, or in, uh, in Antioch of Syria, and uh, that would be Turkey today. And we have the true line that has preserved the Word of God without error. And now we have a corrupt second set of Greek manuscripts that now have been corrupted, changed in over 60,000 places. They both claim to be the scriptures of the New Testament. So now we have the two cities in operation. Antioch is preserving it. Alexandria, Egypt is corrupting it. Now we got the third city yet, which is the Roman Empire, the Western branch. So what we've got to do, and we'll see how that happens in time, we got to get the we got to get the Alexandrian manuscripts into Rome. Okay? They're not there yet. Right now they're down in Alexandria. And Alexandria is the fuel of thought for all of the Gnostics. So just like the early Gnostics followed Pantanus and Philo, the 2nd and 3rd century Gnostics followed Origen and Clement of Rome. And they formed their thought about New Testament doctrine. And it's all bad and it's all corrupt. See how this thing gets going? It's an incredible thing to study. I mean, I could just go on and study it for absolutely hours. I mean, it's, it's, it's incredible. Origen spends years and years at Alexander changing the, the Antiochian Greek text and correcting the Bible and corrupting the text that came up through Caesarea from Antioch. And, uh, um, you know, and, and it, it, that's what he does. And uh, he, he dies at the hand of persecution, Origen does, when he's 69 years of age. You see, the Roman Empire at this point they didn't make a distinction between the Christians in Antioch or the or, or Origin in Alexandria. They didn't make it. They to them, everybody, whether you were a heretic Christian or a Bible believing Christian, you were a threat. They persecuted everybody. So when you get into church history and Philip Schaff, who by the way writes eight volumes on church history, and Philip Schaff, if he believed what he says he believes, died and split hell wide open. He was a baby-sprinking Episcopalian who never believed the blood of Jesus Christ one time ever washed away anybody's sin. If he got his sins washed away the way he claimed he did by baptism, the man who wrote the eight volumes on church history that influenced the thought of every young pastor in this country in the last 400 years split hell wide open. Ah, but what's the point? The man who put the Bible together that every preacher preaches out of died and went to hell. Origin. So it all fits into the family of things. Now, but you see how confusing it could look if you don't have a Bible. Here's a man origin that you can really get messed up on in every sense of the word. He's godly in, a, in, in one sense. He abstains from the world. See? He's separated. I mean, he's dedicated Philip Schaff told you that he spent half the night praying. I don't. He slept on the floor because he wanted to have humbling. I don't. 
He's educated in a Christian sense of education. I mean, he even loved God enough that he didn't ever want to, he didn't ever want to do anything wrong, so he castrated himself. Hello? And all the historians hail him as the, as the great man of God and a teacher. Well, you saw what he said over there in, in Philip Shaw's book. Newell says the same thing. Every writer of church history thinks he's the greatest thing that ever hit the planet. And yet, when you really go through what he believed, here's what Origen believed. First of all, he believed in no literal resurrection. He did not believe that Adam's account in Genesis was literal. He did not believe that the account of creation was literal. He did not believe that our bodies would ever be resurrected. He didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God. He believed and taught the restoration of the devil, that someday the devil was going to be restored. He believed that the sprint of water saved you and regenerated you. He taught that the pastor should be called a priest. His conception of God was Plato's conception of some universal salvation. He believed the apocrypha books were already, which we've already talked about, were inspired. He begins the teaching of the heresy of purgatory. He taught that the unsaved people someday would be restored back to heaven just like the devil would be. And Origen sets the stage for the next 1,800 centuries of corruption and lays the foundation for the Roman Catholic Church with his teachings and all of the great scholars and educated world that follow it from, from him on. And that's exactly what he does. Now, do you see how this thing goes? Christianity has gotten educated and very slowly... The teachings and the principles creep into the church and it creeps in all over the place except one place and that place is Antioch. I can't, I can't overemphasize Alexandria, Egypt and I cannot overemphasize Antioch of Syria. Origen takes the Greek manuscripts of Antioch and corrupts them and changes them to line up with his own pagan and God-forsaken philosophy. What comes forth is a corrupt Hebrew Old Testament and a corrupt Greek New Testament, which make up the Greek text for every new Bible on the market today. And um, it all starts with him. Not only does he destroy the true Hebrew and Greek text, but his damnable heresies that he taught under the pretext of Christianity feeds the teaching of the Gnostics. And he's the one that gives them what they really need. And, uh, you know, Origen is a lot like anybody today who, who writes material in great volumes. I mean, maybe he himself never gets out of the house. But everybody on the planet reads his material and then uses that for the text by which they do what they do. And when the Gnostics began to develop, then they needed the fuel to fire them, to keep them going, to take the heresy to the next level, and in time, develop the doctrines, and in time, develop the church. They used what Origen gave them. And it's the same way today. The Gnostics didn't die out, I guarantee you. And uh, I, I told you, I, I told you. 
Uh, Christianity, uh, you know, gets the idea that it needs to be cultured and educated, and boy, the church falls flat on its face. In less than 300 years after the death of Christ, the devil has moved now in complete opposition to God's Holy Spirit. And the truth of the matter is, the devil was setting the groundwork for it at the same time God was setting the groundwork for for the establishment of his church. This is what you've got to see in history. Wherever God is at in history... Listen to me. Wherever God is at in history, the devil will right be around the corner. And I want to take it one step further. Whatever you try to do for God, I mean, you look at these things of the way the devil works in church history, it is his modus operandi, the way he works in everything in life. And everything we try to do as the church, everything you try to do as a Christian, on an individual basis, the devil will always be right around the corner to pull the plug on it. I guarantee you. It's just one of those things that you have to understand as you go through life and you realize that this is what it is. Once you understand it, then you can better deal with it. But you don't get the true story in history. I mean, you just really don't. Uh, not the history books, the true story, you know, you, you just don't. The true story is in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. And uh, the Bible talks about the fact that they were faithful unto death. And they were. While all this was going on, and you read about Philip Choff, he, he doesn't write one thing about any common, ordinary, Bible-believing Christian that was paying the price and doing the work of God. You know why? Because he doesn't believe they were the true Christians. He believed that Origen, Saturnus, Serinthesis, those are the real Christians. And Philip Schaff come out of a church that broke out of the Roman Catholic Church back in the 1500s and carried the same traditions along with it, and uh, he couldn't find God in church history if he had a laser beam and a flashlight. He writes a non-biblical church history that has nothing to do with God or the Bible. And of course, that's what you're up against today. Now, this brings, in this particular series, anyhow, uh, 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 to the uh, study of biblical church history to the end of the second period of church history. And it's been laid out for us now through our absolute final authority on church history, the Word of God. And the time element that we're at right now is right up before the 325 A.D., the Council of Nicaea. And before, and we'll get into that next week, but before we start to study the third period of church history, which is the Pergamus period, let's look at what we have already studied because in history the material comes so quickly and in such volumes that sometimes it's hard to keep it all together. We now ought to be able to see, if you're paying attention and following your outlines, we now ought to be able to see the breakdown of the church and it came from within, not without. I told you New Year's Eve that any church will never be destroyed from the outside. It will always be destroyed from the inside. And, you know, we see that at the very beginning with the church that was fully purposed, the church at Ephesus, it got corrupted not because of the people on the outside. The Roman, the Roman, the Roman government could never stop the church. Never could. The more you kill God's people, the more you persecute them, the more they become like rabbits and multiply and the stronger they get. No, 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 no. The only way the devil will ever destroy the church or could destroy the church was from the inside. 
So when he started the de- corruption, he started with good godly men like Polycarp. Good godly men who just used non-biblical terms. He borrowed them from the pagan Greek philosophy of the educated uh, classical Greek mind and stuck them into Christianity very, 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 very slowly, very subtly, to the point that somebody would say, what's the big deal? Because it, any infraction of the principles and the words of God will develop. I tell you all the time, you give the devil an inch and he'll drive an 18-wheeler through it. That's why the Bible says, in your life and my life, to give no place to the devil. You give a place to the devil by stepping outside the Word of God and doing it in a non-biblical fashion, he'll run the whole thing. Like my old grandma used to say, you give the devil an inch and he'll become a ruler. And that's exactly true. And so we can see now and begin to see that the breakdown of the church came from within, not without. The church at Ephesus, the church that was fully purposed, it started by them losing, or excuse me, leaving their first love. And and I think that's important. I showed you Sunday um, out of Amos chapter 8, I think it was, or Amos 12, about the famine of the Word of God. And yet when you read that passage, if you're not careful, you, you, you think that there was no Bible there. The famine wasn't the fact that there was no Bible. The famine was the fact that nobody was hearing the Bible that was there. And when you come down through this, it wasn't that they lost their first love. It was that they left their first love. And that first love's the Bible. Has to be. It has to be. Somebody says, well, I think it's Christ. You wouldn't even know there was a Christ if you didn't have a Bible. The, the first love of your life needs is that book. Because without that, you don't know anything. Well, I think my first love is God. You idiot, you wouldn't even know there was a God without the book that God gave you. And when they left their first love, that's where it started. You know, that's where it starts in your life and my life. That's where it starts in churches. That's where it starts in everything. Leaving the principles of the Word of God. And uh, we see from the writing of the early church fathers that that, you know, what took place, what replaced it. In time, it was just a few little words here. The word Catholic, son of the church, the mother of us all. And then a little bit more came in with philosophy and education. Then they brought culture. Then they brought science. And now that, you know, is exactly the way it broke down. And, uh, you know, the uh, Christian education exalted itself. There came up a group that said, you know what? We're uh, smarter than the average people. Somebody said, yeah, you know what? Uh, In the Old Testament, there was a priest class that was over the people. I think we need to have one today in the church. And, of course, uh, that's exactly what they did. And they began to replace the Word of God with higher authority, uh, education, and all the time acting the part of a meek, humble servant of the Lord, trying to do God's will, even up to the point of castrating yourself. And then at the end of your life, dying and splitting hell wide open and burning like a torch for the next 1,800 years. Hey. Now, through this breakdown of leaving the sound teaching and principle of God's Word, the heresy starts slowly at first. With the writing of the church father, it gains momentum under the Antiochian church fathers, and then the Gnostics come in. And by the time we get to 300, 325 days with Origen, after his writings, and he gets everything set up, and he gets this thing focused and gets it on the way. Origen poured the cement by which the foundation of the Roman Catholic Church was going to be built on. 
He takes all of the teachings and solidifies them into firm thought by which the next guy all he has to do, and I'm going to show you next week how it happens. He takes those things and he establishes it built on what Origen gave him. And uh, by the time we get to 300, 300 a day with Origen, we have seen the body of Christ as far as the hierarchy, uh, the writers, the 10 top concepts and all of the things that go along with it are just shot flat to pieces. We have our three lines now completely down. We're getting ready to move into the Roman line. I'm going to show you how next time I'm going to show you how we have the Antioch, we have the Alexandrian, but now we got to get the manuscripts to the western side of the empire to Rome. And I'm going to show you how that's done. We already know that the Syriac of Antioch is the true line, would preserve the word for us. We know that Alexander Egypt changes and subtracts for it, and we're going to see it go to the point where uh, the devil takes it and he starts his church. See, Christ knew in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that he was going to establish his church. And everything in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John about the first coming of Christ is, in essence, the establishment of Christ's church. But at the same time in Alexander, Egypt, the devil knows he's going to start his church. And you study the two formulating and the way they start, unbelievably similar. Because the devil just used the model that God was going to use. So at this point in time, the Christian can be, can be really confused. I mean, on the one hand, I'm, I'm a nobody. I mean, really, I mean, I'm a nobody telling you that the men with Christian historians and writers like Philip Schaff hold up and tell you they're the greatest men in the history, and I'm telling you they're jerks, clowns, and unsaved pagans. I mean, uh, by what authority do I have a right to say that? I mean, uh, I, mean, I mean, who am I? You know who I am? I'm a Bible believer. And as a Bible believer, I have a, I have a final authority that puts him in the boat with the clowns. And keeps it straight for me. And my, my verse, my life verse is one verse. Let God be true and every man a liar. Romans chapter 3. And, uh, you know, and all this, another great principle of the Bible come to the front. That, that you know, that uh, not only valuable in church history, but uh, it's all events in a Christian life. And it's found in Luke chapter 16, verse 15. You know what it is? And you want to carry this through everything you do in life. It simply says this. That which is highly esteemed among men. It's an abomination in the sight of God. If man lifts it up, God puts it down. If man lifts it up to some high pinnacle, it has nothing to do with God. That which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. That is a verse that you can take and look at almost everything you do and see how the truth of that thing lays itself out. Because uh, that is so true. And that's the thing that keeps me on track. As I have an absolute guide that tells me uh, that God's faithful people have never been the majority. I mean, they've always been the minority. And, of course, uh, we see it in Noah. We see it in Gideon. We see it in the remnant of the nation of Israel. We see it in the remnant of the Bible-believing groups down through history. And we see it in the remnant of the Bible-believing groups today. But God always had his faithful witness, you see, and that's how it works. And uh, so we'll hold up there and... Uh, Next time we'll get into the, uh, uh, we'll get into, and I'll show you how this thing, this is, ne next week, is next time we get together, to me, is probably the key focal point in all history. I, I think that, I, I don't know of another point in history, and maybe there is, I don't know, but to me, I don't know of another point in history that is more, just takes my breath away 
than to see how the devil pulled this thing off. It is the it is the absolutely the greatest incredible thing you have ever seen in your life. And we'll pick it up when we get into the Pergamus Church period and bring us up to the Council of Nicaea. Any questions about anything if anybody's got? Pretty self-explanatory, but if there's something you need to not sure of, anybody? Yeah, David. I got a quick question. Ah. You, hear, you talk about the church fathers, and then you hear other people talk about the church fathers. There's good church fathers and bad church fathers, right? Pardon me? Like, yeah, that's right. There are good church fathers and there are bad church fathers. I told you earlier, there's so much material in church history that if I tried to teach it down the line and give you all the material, it would be a, it would be a, so what I got to do is this. I got to bring you down one line first and we'll get to a point. We'll come down one line first, get to a point, then we'll go back up and we'll bring the other line down and bring it to a point and then we'll start fresh again and that'll keep it in perspective for you. Well, there's just so much material. I mean, absolutely so much material that if you try to do it all at the same time. But he's right. There are good church fathers and there are bad church fathers. Right now, we've seen some of the early ones that were good, but they deviated. And then we got into the corrupt ones who are no good. And now just about everybody we talking about are worthless. But we're going to come back in time and I'll show you the good ones. I'll show you how it all works. Yeah, Jim? I'm sorry, what now? Where are the guys that were supposed to be holding these guys accountable? Were, they, were there anybody there? Were these guys just legends in their own time? Well, let me put it, see how I can put it in a... They had risen themselves above any form of accountability. See? It's like... They got to the point where the true church was a joke to them. And the true Bible believers they looked at as inferior. So they set themselves up in like their own exclusive little club. So there was no accountability factor because they didn't recognize the, the real people as the real people. And they did recognize themselves, but it was much like the it was much like the scholarly world today. There's no accountability in that at all. They don't hold each other accountable. They allow each other to be and teach whatever they want to teach as long as they recognize each other as scholars. See, that's the thing they're looking for. They're looking for the notoriety that I am a scholar. You know, and, uh, and of course, uh, they didn't recognize the early church. The church separated from them. I'll show you here down the line where the church basically said, up your nose with a rubber hose, we ain't following you, and they separated from them. So that left the Gnostics in one area who looked at disdain on the true church and ridiculed them for being unlearned, and then they exalted themselves to the place where they were the accountability system. And, um, and, and, and the whole thing just got that going. It's, it's the same way today. It's the exact same way today. You don't see it because you're not in it. You're protected from it. You've not, you've not been around it to see it. But I'm telling you right now, in the world of Christianity, uh, when you go to be a pastor for a church, 
and, uh, and they want to try you out or talk to you about the, being a pastor of the church, you know, the, the first thing you'd think they'd want to ask is, you know, what's your view on soul winning? First thing they want to ask is how many times you've been through the Bible. First thing you want to ask is how many people have you personally won to Christ next last year? You think the first thing they want to ask is, you know, do you understand the 11 dispensations of the Bible? Can you have a plan to teach this church the Bible? You'd think that would be the first thing. No, the very first thing they ask them, where did you go to school and how many degrees you got? Isn't that right, John? John knows he's been in it. Remember that time you came and asked me about, the, you were on the board to talk to love, I think it was, wasn't it? When he came, you came to me and he asked me, what questions can I ask him? I gave you a good list of them, man. No wonder they kicked you out. <laughs> but I got you. One of the best men I ever met in my life. And uh, that's what it is. There is no accountability. And, and it, here's the bottom line, folks. Here's the bottom line. When you don't have a Bible that is your final authority, you don't have any accountability to anything. You become your final authority. When you become the final authority, then you become your own accountability. And that's what, get, that's what they did. That's what they did. Well, okay, good deal. Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll be dismissed.